0: Welcome to the Church 214 Podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. So I've had a lot of conversations with many of you today and over the last few weeks, and it is apparent that many of you are in a season of suffering, okay? You're in a season of suffering, and I feel like as I was getting ready to prepare this portion of today's service, I wanted to speak to you. So go ahead and take a seat for a few minutes. I want to speak to those of you that are suffering. If you are a son or daughter of Jesus, you need to know this. This is not punishment. This is purposeful. You are suffering in order to be drawn closer to the heartbeat of Jesus. This is for your good, and it might not feel good, but this is for your good. But it is time for you to step into your true identity of your child's role as the father's son or daughter. Okay, so in your suffering, begin to say, God, break me, humble me, show me that I am your son, show me that I am your daughter, and then you need to begin to receive the lavish love of Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says this, since we are his children, we are his sons, we are his daughters, And we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are his heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, meaning eternity, we also must share in his suffering. And so I want to read to you. I want to read to you from Isaiah 53. And this was a prophecy given to Isaiah seven centuries before Jesus ever died on the cross and rose again. Seven centuries. And I'm going to read to you about the suffering of Jesus that was prophesied about him. And it is going to be clear that no human in history could possibly fit this prophetic bill other than Jesus Christ. So we got to flip back actually to Isaiah. Guys, this is a little bit long, but you've got to hear this. So I want you to picture your suffering, and I want you to hear all of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for us, And then I want you to begin to lay your suffering at the foot of the cross as I read this to you. So Isaiah 52, starting in 13, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was even a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing attracted us to him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with the deepest of grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't even care. Yet in our weakness, he carried us. And in our sorrows, those are what weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, we've gone astray from him. We have left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sin of all of us. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not even open his mouth. Unjustly, he was condemned. He was led away. And no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's great plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Church, that is us. We are the descendants of his suffering. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, because of his suffering, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, and he will bear all of their sins. I will give him honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. And Jesus said that he knew that was coming. And yet he's chose those last moments on earth to be spent serving his disciples a meal. Having this intimate moment with him, teaching them what it meant to truly lay down your life. And he broke bread and he said, this is my body, remember me. And this is my blood, remember me. And I think so often we come to this portion of communion in church and it feels kind of religious because we've all done it so many times. And we eat the wafer and we drink the juice and we forget what it actually means. And then others of us hear the term communion and we instantly shrink back into this shadow of shame because right now you start to catalog every dark sin that you know put him on the cross. And you're starting to stand in the shadow of shame instead of stepping up to the table of mercy that he has set for you. Last night, God gave me this word, and it is for someone here. I don't know who it is, but it's for someone. Communion. Some here will step away from this table of lavish love that I, the Father, have set for you. Instead of taking the seat of honor and of royalty that I have pulled out for you, you step into the shadow of shame and guilt. No more, my son. Come and dine with me. The cost I paid for you was worth it, but it was my son on a cross. You know the truth, and now the truth has set you free. Today, You will start to walk in the fullness of your true identity. You are my chosen son. I broke Jesus' body, and I shed his blood for you. And it was worth it. So know my love today. So we're going to invite you to step to the table of this lavish expression of Jesus' love for you. And back here to my left, there is a communion table set. And when you feel ready, I want you to step into your true identity as a son of the living God, as a daughter of the King of Kings. And I want you to walk with confidence, with your head held high. But before you do that, I want you to leave your shame in the shadow where it belongs. And I want you to step out of the shadow. And I want you to go and I want you to dine with Jesus because that's where you belong. And then we're going to worship, okay? So get on your feet. Jesus, you see these hearts. You see these souls. And Jesus, I thank you that you've given us the ability to dine with you. And so, Jesus, right now, this act is to remember you. We break any chain of religion that would cause people to think this is just an act. God, we remember what you did. We remember that you sent your son. Jesus, we remember your broken body and your blood that was shed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Good morning, Church 214. Are you excited to be in the presence of God today? That's what I like to hear. We're going to have some fun. And I think we're going to learn a lot. For those of you that are new to this church or new to our podcast, my name is Phil Schaefer, and I have the incredible privilege I'm going to sit down for a little bit. Um, I had the incredible privilege of serving as the worship director here at Church 214. Um, I've been leading worship for over 15 years and this is the most fun I've ever had. Um, And it's just so awesome to look out every Sunday and see so many people just lifting their hands to Jesus. Um, Not because of anything we do up here, but because of who he is. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my partner in crime is uh, my absolutely stunning wife, Becca. She's here in the front row. Um, sorry. <laughs> we, we will be married for uh, six years on October 26th. Yes, thank you. Um, she, uh, I just want to publicly honor her really quick. She serves alongside me as the our producer, and if you don't know what that means, um, she is responsible for first hearing from God, Okay, we do that first here at Church 214. She's responsible for hearing from God. She's responsible for interfacing with my team, the worship team, and the teaching team to sort of organize um, the order of service every single Sunday. She puts a script together. She schedules people for specific roles, time slots, things like that. It's a very important job at our church, and she does a just absolutely amazing job. So I want to publicly honor you, baby. Thank you. We also have um, Kale David, our son, who I think went back to pay. Play, sorry. Um, That's how. When you have, those of you that have children know sometimes you just start talking like them. It takes a while for them, much longer for them to start talking like you. Um, But he's awesome. He's two and a half, and we have another baby on the way due in March. Um, So we are really excited about that. We are really excited about the direction that God is taking our family specifically but I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, that we are just as excited or if not more excited about the direction that God is taking this church. Okay, uh, we will start saying this over and over and over again, but like, just trust us. We don't have enough time to tell you all of the stories. We will never have enough time to tell you all the stories. So just know that the speed at w- which God is moving, the depth at which God is moving, and the breadth at which God is moving is just absolutely breathtaking in this it's a good time to be in this city believe it or not don't believe the headlines okay it's a great time to be in the city and it's a great time to be um in this church specifically god is moving all over the city and he's especially moving in this church and it's really really awesome to be a part of that and part of this direction that he has us in for the next 3 weeks is to talk about worship in this series called muted and i want to get one thing very clear right at the beginning so that we are on the same page. At Church 214, we believe that worship is way more than music. Okay? Now, many of you have probably heard that before, but I just want to make sure that we all know, on the podcast, here in this room, worship is way more than music at this church. It's a heart condition. Okay, worship is a heart condition. But we also believe that one of the most powerful ways to influence that heart condition... Is through music, because God created us this way, and so we could spend the next three weeks talking and explaining from all sorts of different angles in the Bible about, you know, why worship is more than music, and we will do some of that in the coming weeks, but not this week. I want to dive headfirst today into a discussion about worship specifically through music, because I think we take it for granted. I'm starting to get excited. I, 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 okay. <laughs> um, I, I want to. We 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 take it for granted. It's so commonplace that we often fail to understand the power and importance that it carries. It's become this thing that we always do, but that this thing that we always do gets diluted by arguments over style and presentation and sound levels and mixed preferences and dress code and a bunch of other really important secondary things. Okay? Does anybody here agree with me that... that okay, good. Okay, <laughs> Next point. <laughs> Does anybody agree with me that how we worship is not nearly as important as why we worship? Does anybody agree with me that singing in church worship through music, or worship in any capacity is not a man-made idea. It's not a church idea. It's actually a God idea from the beginning, before the beginning of time. Okay. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. I just want to try to, this is such a huge concept and we will never have enough time, um, so I need to be careful. But I want us to try to start to discover why why we sing why we sing and why it can be so powerful. Okay? So I've titled this message, The Only Song You Have to Sing. So if we're going to look at what the Bible says about this subject, I think the most obvious place to start would be the Psalms, right? Because it's this huge book in the middle of the Bible, and it's only songs Right, And you see lines in it very specific. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord the glory do his name. Um, and then you can also see like notes before some of them that say, like, to the choir master. So David must have had choirs back then. Um, you can also see notes to about specific instruments that were to be played. And just really quick, uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I don't know this, so take it with a grain of salt, but I'm pretty sure David's bands were the largest in human history because if i read those texts and i take them at face value especially those those like little music director notes um they were bigger than any band in human history like they they didn't have fancy buildings like we have they didn't have fancy speaker systems like we have and so to get a sound that they th- that they could maybe th- feel approximately worthy of the immense glory of God, they had to get as many people as they could to sing as loud as they could and as many instrumental players to play as loud as they possibly could. They had a huge band, and it was probably much louder than it was today. Sorry, not sorry. Um, I realize this is a bit of a self-serving message, but I promise you, I promise you that's not my intention. This is a, a, a God-serving Message and it's for your good. I promise you that. So, we could talk about the Psalms or we could talk about this idea that music is a universal language, and it is. Every culture throughout human history has had some kind of music. And whether you are in this room right now or you are listening on the podcast a year from now, let me just say that you all know what good music is. Whatever artist, whatever genre, Like, you can point to a time in your life, hopefully it was this morning, when music moved you. Like, when it really moved you. But that's just an observation. It's a true observation, but it's just an observation. And I believe there's more. Because if we're going to say that, uh, we need to go back to the beginning, because if we're going to say that We were created as musical beings, then we need to go back and look at creation, okay? So let's go to Genesis 1, verse 1. I know this is probably probably one of the most popular passages in Scripture that everybody knows, but there's power in reading God's Word, amen. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And the chapter continues, I'm sure you're familiar, with day three, day four, and so on. If you haven't read that passage before, please go back in your own time and read it. It's an amazing story. But in the interest of time, I want to skip to the end. So let's go to day number seven, which is chapter two, verse one. Okay, chapter two, verse one. I'll be reading out of the NLT this time. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Now notice really quickly that the story starts over. Let's keep going. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. So if you were paying attention, um, you would notice that, like, like, what's going on here? That would probably be your first question. If you've studied these passages before, maybe you've had this question. These, these passages are talking about the same thing, but chapter 2 kind of like gets the order wrong. It's like shorter, and, and it, it kind of flips things around. And you might even ask yourself, do these passages contradict each other? And that would be a really fair question, because skeptics will point to this passage usually first, if not very soon after, as one of the prime examples of how to discredit the Bible. But as always, context is everything, okay? And I, so what you have here, let's go back and look at Genesis 1. If you notice, it has a well-defined format. You see the phrases repeated over and over again it's very repetitive i would say it's very lyrical like a song Okay hey guys Genesis 1 is a song Genesis 2 is not lyrical or repetitive and it reads like a book so we would consider that an historical account so what you have is a song about an event followed by an historical account about that same event and when you have a song You have to take into account things like creativity and metaphor, which means you can't take it too literally. Now, before you suck the rest of the air out of the room and suffocate (laughs) or run for the hills and start emailing, um, let me just make one thing very clear. Listen very closely. At Church 214, we believe the entire Bible from the front to the back, and that includes the text in Genesis 1 and the text in Genesis 2. What I did say was we have... Two different genres of literature describing the same event, and if you have two different genres of literature, you have to treat them differently. That's all I'm saying. Equal amounts of truth in chapter one, equal amounts of truth in chapter two. I'm not here to debate that. Two different genres of literature, we got to treat them differently. Are we on the same page? Okay. And I don't want to just, don't take my word for it, okay? I want to, there's this structure in the Bible is actually very common, and I want to look at two examples very quickly to sort of support this argument, because once you, d- once you realize that you have two genres of literature describing the same event, this contradiction argument breaks down. So in Exodus 14, you can see, we're not going to read it, but we're going to, you can see, you can read the uh, historical account of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptian army drowning in the Red Sea. Exodus 14. Exodus 15, the very next chapter, the entire chapter, is a song written by Moses and his sister Miriam about the same event. Now let's look at just one verse from Exodus 15. And let's keep this verse up here for a little bit. Exodus 15, 8. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. This is the New Living Translation. Now, a couple of things here. Did God literally go, <sighs> to split the waters? 100% believe he could have. He didn't. Here's why. God doesn't have to lift a finger to move waters that he created out of nothing just by speaking. Okay, aren't you glad? Okay, what does that mean then? Why would you put that there? Well, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor which describes God's immense power, but also his desire to be close to his people, his nearness to his people, his presence with his people. It's as if God was not so in some far-off place, thankfully. It's as if he was right next to them, so close that he could use his breath to split the waters. Okay. It says the surging water stood straight like a wall. Okay. Do you think that the waters looked like a wall when they were split? Yes, they did. Okay, you can prove this with a science experiment in a fancy lab with with some fancy equipment or if you have a lot of courage and some creativity, you can try it at home. I did not recommend that to you, but if you do it, I would suggest a small amount of water for very obvious reasons, okay? So that's obvious. So you have some metaphor first, then you have a little bit of sideline reporting, I like to call it, okay? And then it says, in the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. So, did the iron content spike? No. Totally believe he could have done that. I don't think he did. Um, Did he freeze the water? No, they're in the desert, Phil. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because our God is way more powerful than the desert, so he could totally freeze the waters and keep them frozen in the desert. But I don't think he did that either because the Israelites probably had never seen ice before, at least that much ice. And so they would have like started to cross the Red Sea and been like, oh, that feels amazing. (laughs) And then he would have been like, he would have been like, hey guys, I'm trying to, come on, I'm trying to save you. Don't, it's just a miracle. Don't worry about it. Come on. Like, (laughs) and then if it was frozen, you know, then the Egyptians, you know, could, I don't know, Get across, but no, that didn't happen either. And if you look at the ESV, it says the waters congealed, so did they become like jello or <laughs> rock candy or caramel? Like, it's, I think you get the point. It's a song, okay? Judges 4. I love this story. The prophetess Deborah and Barak lead the Israelites into battle against the general Sisera and the Canaanites. And God wins the battle miraculously on Israel's behalf. And Sisera, the general, flees the battlefield. At the end of the chapter, a woman named Jael convinces Sisera to come into her tent to hide. But he falls asleep, and she jams a tent peg through his temple and kills him. It's like an awesome story. If you didn't know, the Bible is R-rated a lot more often than you might think. It is. So let's look at one verse. From Judges five, that was Judges four. Judges five is a song about the same event. It says the stars fought from heaven. The stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. So, did the stars fight against Sisera? One hundred percent believe they could have. Um, what are stars? Fire and radiation. That's basically it. So. From, did they rain down fire and radiation on only the Canaanites from millions and billions and trillions of light years away? 100% believe God could have done that. However, if that happened and that's the way that God won the battle, that detail would have definitely made it into chapter 4. Like nobody would have forgot to put that in. But it's not in there. So, what is it? It's a metaphor. It's describing God operating from outside this dimension that we can see and feel and understand to work a victory inside this dimension for his people. And aren't you glad that he has time for this dimension? Okay, so I think you get my point, guys. It's a song. This is, this is a common structure in the Bible. I could go on for hours with this. So you might be saying, so what? Well, let's go back to Genesis 1. Guys, the very first words of the Bible are not just words, they are a song, and this has massive implications, because at the beginning of time, God didn't just speak the universe into existence, he sang the universe into existence. He didn't just speak us into existence, he sang us into existence, and you might be saying, I don't think God's into music that much. Okay, Revelation 4, 8, what does that verse say that the angels do day and night, forever and ever? It says they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So heaven is, has always been stuck on praise and worship, is currently stuck on praise and worship, and will always be stuck on praise and worship. What does the Lord's prayer say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if heaven is stuck, what, what's, what's happening in heaven? Yes, never-ending praise of the one who made us and the one who saved us and the one who is coming back. So if earth is supposed to look anything like heaven, that means it, has to, it should have a lot of music. We should have a lot of singing and a lot of music going on. So, guys, God is a musical being. Music is intrinsic to God's being. It's also intrinsic to being in God's presence, right? The angels, that's all they do. Now, that doesn't mean that God is only a musical being and he doesn't have other aspects of his character. And it also does not mean that the only way to get into God's presence is through music. It just means that often encounters with God's presence involve music. That's all I'm saying. And since God made us in his image, then every single one of us are created as musical beings. Every single one of us. Whether you have A-plus musical talent or a big fat F-minus? Okay? You were wired to respond to music. You were wired to respond with music. Again, not many of you are songwriters in this room, and that's okay. Go ask any songwriter ever, what was the inspiration for that song, or that song, or that song? And they will tell you, well, I experienced this, or I had this feeling. Like we we process our lives through music. Like this is is obvious whether you believe in Jesus or not. So we were wired we were created for worship in many different ways, but especially through music and Genesis 1 without a doubt proves it, but there's even more. Would you like to hear more? Okay. Genesis 1 verse 2, let's look at some of these, the most important lyrics in this song. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, that's not a very compelling sentence in the English. I mean, I think it is, but like some of you, okay, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. If you look at the original Hebrew, though, you will see that the Spirit of God is not depicted as a cloud bank moving over the waters. The Hebrew word for hover is rakaf. And it is only ever used to describe a mother bird hovering over her babies. What a beautiful picture of God's, before anything was created, what a beautiful picture of God's love for this creation, for his closeness, for his presence to his creation. Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God hovers over us like a mother bird. This is awesome. Guys, what, what else do we see? Every single verse of the song, description of each day, starts with, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. So when I say let there be music on Sunday mornings, what you may not know is that three months ago, I actually scheduled a team of people to be here. And we get here early, 7.30, and we pray and ask God's presence to fill this place. And then we break out and we start taking out this equipment and we have cables and we connect it all together. And then we turn everything on and we grab our instruments and our voices. And then there is music. So when God says, let there be light, something which is way more impressive than me saying, let there be music. God doesn't like start digging holes in the ground and putting poles in the ground and then like stringing wire from each from town to town <laughs> building an infrastructure and then flipping a giant switch so that everyone has light. When God says let there be light, there's just light. Because God's word has the word of God has real power. And the reason the word of God has real power is because the word of God is a person. John one in the beginning God created, or, that's Genesis one. John one in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is a big, this is a big concept, guys, and it's we we will never fully understand it on the side of eternity, but we have to start trying. Okay, God isn't just speaking into the void of nothingness. He is singing to his creation because he wants a relationship. Okay, what does the end of each verse of the song say? God sings, it is good. What does it is good mean? I work for a company that makes steel parts for many different industries around the world. And part of my job is to inspect questionable parts and decide if they are still good for my customers. So when I say it is good, I'm an inspector. Well, this summer when you're outside mowing and it's really hot, but you finish up and you go sit down in the shade and you have a huge glass of ice-cold water, you take a drink, what do you say? That's good. Or maybe you were at this amazing concert and your favorite artist and they just finished playing your favorite song. What do you say? That's a good song. So let me ask you a question Did the water and the song pass your inspection? No. You were enjoying those things. So it is good means enjoyment. When God says it is, when I say it is good, I'm an inspector. When God says it is good, he is not inspecting his work because that wouldn't make any sense. He's perfect, and so he cannot create something that does not already meet his standards for quality. Okay? So when God says it is good, he is the creator singing an expression of joy over his work. And then in Genesis 1.26, something truly wonderful happens because God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, that is the Trinity, say, let us make man in our image. And what does God say then? It is very good. And in that moment with those words, he identified us as his most precious creation and expresses a level of joy the most joy he has ever expressed over something that is not himself. Aren't you glad? But if you keep reading through Genesis 2 and 3, you will see that it didn't last long. Adam and Eve sinned, and that severed their relationship. Love was not lost in that moment. Love was not lost. Love will never be lost. You cannot run too far from him. But the relationship was lost. It is very good was lost. The rest of creation, on the other hand, never sinned because the rest of creation didn't and still doesn't have a choice like you and I do. That's the beauty and the pain of it. The rest of creation has never, ever failed for one moment to perfectly fulfill its purpose to bring glory to its creator. Guys, that's why creation is so beautiful to us. That's why creation is so beautiful to us. Almost painfully so because deep down whether you know Jesus or not, you have this feeling in your soul that somehow we're out of place. Because as his most precious creation, we are yet we are surrounded by creation that hasn't lost its way. So we feel out of place, like royalty and exile. D- do you remember, for those of you that weren't here in March, please go back and listen to Sleeper Cell. My very good friend Kip uh, preached an unforgettable message, like one for the ages to close out that series. And at the end, he played this recording of like sunrise in the woods in central Illinois when he was hunting. That sound is the song of creation singing the praises of its creator. And maybe hunting in the woods early in the morning when it's really cold is not your thing. Maybe you would rather be laying on the beach listening to the waves crashing on the shore. Or maybe you would rather be standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon wondering how in the world did this get here? Or maybe you would rather be staring up at the stars wondering, how did all of that get up there? Is it possible to know the name of all of those? What kind of God could do that? Whatever it is, you have no words for how moving that is. You have no words. If you look at nature and you wonder why it's so beautiful and full of joy, but your life isn't, I would ask you, does your life revolve around praising your maker? Are you doing what you were literally created to do? 18th century powerhouse preacher George Whitefield said this one time, haven't you ever noticed that when you come near the animals, they growl at us, they bark at us? The birds screech at us and fly away. Do you know why? They know that you have a quarrel with their master. So so what now? Whether you know Jesus or not, stop quarreling with your maker. How do we do that? Genesis 1 points to it. The only other place in the Bible that starts with in the beginning. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's Jesus. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller said so beautifully, so I'm just going to read this. The Word who made matter became matter. The one who was invisible became visible. When he went to the cross, he was decreated. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. The spirit of God was no longer hovering over him. Our maker had to be decreated so that we could be recreated. And when you believe that Jesus died in your place, the relationship is restored and it allows you to know that God once again looks at you and says, you are very good. When his son Jesus was getting baptized, God said in Matthew three seventeen, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. He didn't say this is my dearly loved son who brings me joy. That would be like the rest of creation. He says great joy. In both Genesis 1 and Matthew 3, God is expressing a level of joy that we cannot comprehend. And because the blood of Jesus thankfully has erased the record of sins against us, he looks at us and he sees his son. The righteousness of Jesus has been given to us. And he can again express the same level of joy over us that he expresses over his own son. This is great news Amen? Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus that he raised the record of sins against you so that your relationship can be restored to the one who made you? This is why I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God sang all of creation into an existence of never-ending praise. All of creation, that's you and me. Guys, this is why we sing and why it can be so powerful. We were the only ones given a choice in the matter and yet we find a million ways to make it about ourselves. And in so doing, We lost our voices. We forgot how to sing the only song we have to sing. But thankfully, Jesus came down and he said, let me teach you a new song, a song of grace, a song of redemption. And in that moment, our eyes start to open and we start to remember what had once been forgotten. The song we were created to sing. The song of joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory.